0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: When you look at what Republicans do when they come to office, since the mid-1990s, the first thing they do is aggressively pursue these policies that are designed to steer as many resources to the wealthy as possible. And they do that into the hurricane wind of popular opposition.
2: Hello and welcome to Geyser Client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm back from vacation, I'm rested, tanned, ready. Got a great episode here today. So I've been a big fan of Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, because of course I'm the kind of person who's like, I'm a big fan of these two political scientists. Jacob Hacker is at Yale, Paul Pearson is at Berkeley, and they've been a duo for two decades now, writing really important books about the institutional structure of American politics, how uh, social welfare policies work, how they entrench themselves. But more recently, what has happened to the Republican Party? Why does it act the way it does? And in particular, they begin with what should be from the perspective of political science, a conundrum. How does the Republican Party survive consistently pursuing extraordinarily unpopular policies, and in particular, extraordinarily unpopular economic policies? And they've been working on this question for a long time, but like Everyone, they're reevaluating parts of it in, in the Trump era. But at the core of their explanation is inequality. And this is something that I wrestle with, not because I don't think inequality is a crucial and critical part of what is happening in American politics now, I do, but because the question of which part it is playing. Whether it is polarizing things or depolarizing them, pushing the Republican Party to a breaking point or making it stronger by giving it so much money to work with, has it's just hard. The literature is contradictory. It's very hard to find the causal story. It's something that I will occasionally make a run at and then step back a little bit confused. Um, but they have been working on this very hard. And so their new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality, is I think, a pretty profound effort to answer this question. I found the book really revelatory, both in the places I agreed with it and in the places where it helped me clarify why I didn't agree with it. And we go through all of that in this episode. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Ezra.
2: So I'm thrilled we get to have this conversation. I've loved your guys' work for a, a long time. And, and the latest book, it falls like right into a set of things I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a while. But, but I want to start with in some ways, where you start. Paul, what is the conservative dilemma?
1: Well, we, we focus on conservative parties in this book because we think that the fate of democracy in many ways rests on what happens with the conservative party. And we're actually drawing on uh, the, the Harvard political scientist Daniel Ziblatt's book on late 19th and early 20th century democracy, the birth of democracy, in which he highlights the same kind of problem. And the dilemma runs like this. If you're a conservative party, uh, you're likely to be pretty closely linked to economic elites. And as democracy develops, that creates a dilemma. If you try to stick with those economic elites and deliver them what they want, you're going to have a hard time reaching out to uh, regular voters who are becoming more and more important in the political system. If you desert the elites and shift over towards the voters, well, then you run all, all sorts of problems uh, with these powerful allies of your party. So uh, in both in the late 19th and early 20th century and now again today, uh, conservative parties have had to wrestle with this challenge.
2: And, Jacob, how do they do it?
3: Well, the first thing to say is that they're wrestling with this challenge in the United States today because inequality has risen so dramatically. And, I mean, these figures are familiar to you and probably to most of your listeners. But, you know, the one that really sticks with me comes from the work of uh, Piketty and his colleagues, where they show that the share of income going to the top 1% has doubled, while the share of income going to the bottom 50% has essentially fallen by half uh, in the last 30 years or so. And, it's really within the top 1% that we see this concentration. So it's really important to understand that for the Republican Party, this dilemma is a relatively recent development, right? If, you know, we go back to the 1960s and talk about Nixon, but Nixon doesn't face this dilemma. He's actually appealing to the sort of left of his uh, voters uh, with pretty progressive economic policies, even as he's, you know, playing on themes of racial and cultural backlash. But it's in the 1980s and 90s that it becomes increasingly apparent for the Republican Party that there's a lot of money and power at the top. We talk about there being a kind of triple threat to democracy that comes from inequality. That the those at the top have a lot more money, they get more influence because of that, and their interests are likely to grow a lot more distinct uh, from those. Uh, who are not at the top. So the triple threat is that they're, they have more money and power. Second, that their interests are distinct. And third, and, and this is important, they become less invested in democracy because they see democracy as a threat to their power. So what Republicans do is they basically decide to side with the plutocrats. And the book really tries to trace out what the implications of that fateful policy choice are for the Republican Party. And and just to be clear, you know, this isn't a single decision. It's a process that takes place over time. But we really want to stress that this structural shift in the American political economy toward a winner take all economy is driving a, f- a fundamental set of changes in the way our politics works.
2: One of the things there, Jacob, that, that I'd like you to to get into for a minute is when you say the Republican Party decides, who is the Republican Party? How do they decide? How do, how do you think about agency here? Because oftentimes in the book, and this is true in my book and true in sort of all writing about, about politics, we will use singular pronouns for things like the or, or, or names for things like the Republican Party, they, that kind of thing, as if like an actor made a decision. But, but is that true here? Like how, how do you describe that process of decision making?
3: Well, you know, parties are institutions, they're organizations, and they're organizations that are trying to do at least two things, right? They're trying to stay in power, which means uh, winning elections, though they can you know, do some things to undermine the fairness of elections. They ultimately have to get votes. And then the other thing parties are trying to do is to govern, is to shape policy outcomes. And so when we talk about the Republican Party, we're not we're not talking about a single individual, though there are individuals who play important roles. Campaign strategists like Lee Atwater, whose work we discuss, key figures like Newt Gingrich and George W. Bush, and uh, and even those who want to take the party in a different direction, like John McCain. These actors, though, are as you've written in your work, are operating in a system, right? And so the, they're operating in a, in a in a with a set of incentives. And I think the the main thing that we want to emphasize that we think a lot of the work on what's happened in the last you know twenty five years to American politics. Uh, doesn't emphasize is that elites are really fundamental to the story. This Ours is a much more top-down explanation insofar as we think there are a set of elites who are working to try to shape a response to uh, the rise of plutocracy that allows them to keep winning elections. And this sort of trial and error process is what ultimately produces the kind of reactionary version of the Republican Party, what we call plutocratic populism, that leads to Donald Trump.
2: So you have a Republican Party in an era of rising inequality with, at least in theory, an economic agenda that's becoming less and less popular. So Paul, hit me with a grand synthesis here. What, what do they actually do and how do they bring sort of plutocracy and populism into some kind of alignment?
1: I think there's there are two things to emphasize here. One is just how extreme and unpopular the economic policies that the uh, Republican Party has pursued. You know, really, I would say since uh, Gingrich led the Republicans to power in the House in in the um, mid 1990s, Uh, but it's gotten more and more extreme over time. And I I think you can see this most clearly. I'm I'm glad we've gotten this far without, without mentioning Donald Trump, but because it's part of the point of the book is to see this as a broader structural transformation. But if you look at Trump's first year in the White House, you see you know extraordinarily uh, reactionary economic policies, the healthcare bill and the tax cut bill, uh, which the tax cut bill, just to focus on that example for, exa- for a second, 80% of the permanent benefits of that bill going to the top 1% of the income distribution, which is just an extraordinary thing. Uh, for a party that, that wants to win elections, uh, to do with it, with its newfound power. Uh, so we can go into that in more depth, but that's just one important example of the kinds of economic policies that they've been pursuing and the kind of narrow, uh, circle of winners from those policies. But the other piece of this, you know, fundamental to the argument that we make in the book is that in order to make all this work, the Republican Party, and indeed any conservative party that is trying to stay so close to economic elites while also being able to compete in elections, they've got to really encourage people to focus on other dimensions of the social world to be successful. So the second piece of the developing Republican Party in this era is the emergence of of what we call a relationship with surrogate groups that are very good at generating outrage you know very good at giving people a more us versus them view of the world but one that's organized around social issues and the the groups that we focus on in in the book are uh the christian right the national rifle association and even though typically we would treat this as something different and of course it is somewhat different we think right-wing media. Is also a, a, has become a kind of surrogate group for the Republican Party uh, that has helped the party to pursue the economic agenda that it wants to pursue while winning over supportive voters by encouraging them to see politics in a different way, to see uh, issues in a way uh, that makes them fearful of the left, fearful of government uh, and uh, supportive of a party, even if that party is pursuing an agenda that's really damaging to their economic interests. In the book, I
2: would say you put this in a more specific way. And I want to read the claim here because I think it's important to to pull it apart a bit. So you write, "...to advance an unpopular plutocratic agenda, Republicans have escalated white backlash and increasingly undermined democracy." In the United States, then, plutocracy and right-wing populism have not been opposing forces. Instead, they've been locked in a doom loop of escalating extremism that must be disrupted. And this reads to me, and it reads throughout the book, as a causal claim That you have a plutocratic wing of the party, economic elites, who are whipping up white identity politics, racism, xenophobia, anti-immigration sentiment, that kind of thing, in order to get their agenda through using the the power of white backlash. And I want to see here, are you making that causal claim or are you simply saying that these— Two dimensions of American politics have, for various reasons, ended up in coalition with each other.
3: Well, we're making a causal claim for sure, and um, but we're not making that exact causal claim. So, I mean, it's very important to understand that we don't think the the plutocrats, as, as we sometimes call them, are running the show. Um, as as we put it in the book, um, playfully, I hope that you know we don't think the plutocrats aren't are Bond villains in some kind of hidden lair inside the volcano, uh, plotting world domination. In fact, we point out that actually relatively few of the plutocrats, like the Mercers, for example, and and a few others, are really down with the um, kind of toxic right-wing populist themes that end up being the centerpiece of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential run and his presidency. But we do think that because they're interests are extreme, their power is great, and um, they uh, have less interest in, in democracy and therefore less worry about undermining democracy, that they uh, are willing to sign up for uh, a bargain, if you will, that's an implicit bargain that, that the Republican Party and Republican elites uh, are engineering. So it's really the, the, the party elites that, that broker this and the plutocrats that drive it rather than uh, broker it.
2: But, but I think in the book, and you can tell me if this is wrong, you're, you're making a claim that is a little bit stronger than this. And, and, and let me try to reflect it at you and you can tell me if I'm misunderstanding you, which is that it is because of the rising inequality that economic elites have had to, in some cases at least, adopt or go into coalition with or move towards more racist strategies. Um, and you guys have some evidence that across a number of countries, um, there's a good paper you cite in the in the book about this, that as inequality goes up, conservative parties are more likely to turn towards what they call sort of values and social division issues. So can you talk about that a bit, about the way there might be a relationship specifically between the rise of inequality and the rise of populist, anti-immigrant, et cetera, politics, Paul?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, so I think you're pinpointing an important point, which is We're talking about really deep structural changes in societies, which I think makes it difficult to do the kind of, you know, we can clearly demonstrate that this is the single cause of a bunch of other things that we're interested in. But I think it's important to stress right at the outset and and part of the reason why. Why we wrote this book was we felt like this had dropped out of a lot of the conversation about the current Republican administration and and where it came from is that there is there has been a profound shift in the U.S. over the past 40 years in the distribution of economic power. You know, unions have collapsed. The top 1%, really the top tenth or top hundredth of 1%, has gained a dramatic increase in its share of the nation's wealth uh, in a way that really is not paralleled in any other affluent democracy. Right. And that that's just a profound shift. And there's also a lot of evidence. We've document this in the book and in some of our earlier work, that these economic Forces have also become much, much more politically organized. Right there's the Koch brothers network. There's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has just become a formidable lobbying apparatus across many domains. Right. So, so this is the backdrop that there is this this huge shift in power uh, that that shows up uh, in lots of different places. And we do think that there is considerable evidence, right, to suggest uh, that that plays a central role in the politics that we're seeing. You pointed to this. This nice uh, article which looked at a whole range of countries and showed that that you were much more likely to see conservative parties engaging in this kind of ethno-nationalist or cultural uh, politics in in context of high inequality. And as we also point out in the book, there's enormous historical evidence for this as well, that, that in the early days of democracy where you're dealing with very unequal societies, uh, that the same kind of dynamics are really evident, right? So you could say uh, that's all circumstantial evidence, but it's a lot of cir- circumstantial evidence that points in a really consistent direction. And I th- think the last piece of evidence that that I would point to that I think is really important is, and, and in a lot of ways this was sort of the starting point for the work that Jacob and I have been doing for some time, which is that when you look at what Republicans do when they come to office, since the mid 1990s, and this, this was clear uh, for George W. Bush, but then again, stunning uh, with the arrival of Donald Trump, even though he claimed to be, you know, a different kind of Republican and moderate on economic issues. The first thing they do is aggressively pursue these policies that are designed to steer as many resources to the wealthy as possible uh, and to big corporations as possible. And they do that into the, hurricane wind of popular opposition, right? There's no public support for these kinds of initiatives. You know, so all of this to us, you could say, I mean, we we are making a causal argument, though it's not a causal argument that simply says, like, you know, the rich push a button and things happen, because uh, that's clearly not possible in American politics. Uh, but we think that there is enormous evidence from many sources to suggest uh, that these kinds of forces are playing an absolutely central role in our politics. And particularly, they play that role working through the Republican Party.
4: So
2: one of the places where I struggle with this argument, it's 100% clear, and it has been true for a very long time in American politics, that let's call it the forces of white identity politics existing coalition with the forces of economic royalism, for lack, of a, for, for, for lack of a better term. And it's a very strange, in some ways, coalition. And I've said on the show before that I often look at the Republican Party as a machine that turns like, the energy generated by white identity politics into tax cuts for rich people and deregulation for corporations. And it's just a very, very strange system. On the other hand, the place where I'm a little less convinced is it this is a strategy as opposed to a somewhat tense coalition. And one of the reasons I'm less convinced is that the most plutocratic factions of the party tend to be the ones who are the least friendly to the social division agenda. Um, as an example here, you guys talk about how George W. Bush tried to do immigration reform in, I think it was 2003. Seven, was it? 2007, maybe 2005 and fails. Um, he fails because of a conservative right-wing backlash, even though the Chamber of Commerce was on board. There's another shot at immigration reform after the RNC autopsy report in 2013. It fails because of sort of Tea Party um, rejection in the House and um, leaders folding to that. You have like Fox News try to stop some of this. It tries to get on board with immigration reform. They fail after a huge backlash and Sean Hannity backs down. And so one of the things that I see when I look at this history is at different moments, the plutocratic part of the party tries to move towards a more racially inclusive, economically regressive party party. And just gets beaten back. And so they sort of like settle into this weird alliance. But that's different than them wielding this stuff purposefully as a cudgel. And I think it leads to different implications about how you might solve it. So which part of that story that I'm telling here is wrong?
3: No, there's a lot of truth to that story. But I really think it's important to understand that the plutocrats, if they're driving this policy agenda, the Republican Party is in that position that conservative parties were in the early 20th century. And, And that's why it's so interesting to go back and look what they did. Um, And so they did three things, right? One is they came up with uh, alternative themes. And second, they tended to lean onto onto groups that could gin up outrage around those themes. And then finally, they tended to engage in a lot of vote rigging. And the plutocrats have tolerated, more or less tolerated all of that, uh, even if they're not generating uh, all of it. And I think the really important point to understand here, it it comes out a lot if we look at these particular inflection points, is that what the plutocrats want, majorities aren't willing to provide, right? What they would like to have is the tax cuts and the the slashing of government regulations and capacities and the Supreme Court, pro-business Supreme Court appointments without the stuff that they don't like, like the anti-immigration backlash. Um, But that is not... Deliverable through the American electoral system, even with the strong rural bias of our system, even with various kinds of vote rigging like gerrymandering and uh, and voter suppression. So plutocrats are part of a of a of an alliance or a bargain, as I said, a tacit alliance, and they have to accept that they're not going to get all they want. They're getting a lot of what they want. I mean, Mitch McConnell in two thousand. Seventeen at the end of the year said this was the best year for conservatives, the best year on all fronts in the thirty years he'd been there. So, and and Charles Koch said, you know, we've gotten more in the past five years than we have in the previous fifty years. So it's not a wasteland for them, but they're definitely facing tradeoffs. And and I'll just say, and and leave this uh, point to to be elaborated later. That you really see this clearly at these moments, uh, uh, which we sometimes call off ramps, like potential off ramps where the party. Gets challenged from some internal faction, the party, plutocratic populism gets challenged by some internal faction, and you see why it doesn't survive and how it doesn't, uh, how, I mean, how that challenge doesn't survive and why it doesn't survive. Because that really drives home what the nature of this bargain is.
2: One of the reasons I, I focus here, because I agree with everything you just said there, but one of the reasons I want to focus on this question of what relationship do the plutocrats have to this is that then the question of what might reform the Republican Party begins to look different depending on how you answer it. And so so let me phrase it this way. When I look at the Republican Party and I look at the people in it, the leaders in it, who want to make the party much more frontally about white identity politics than it has been previously, or at least in the recent past, when you look at a Donald Trump, a Steve Bannon, a Tucker Carlson, a Josh Hawley, these are the same Guys who are at least rhetorically most willing to throw the tax cuts and deregulation agenda overboard now Donald Trump doesn't because he doesn't care about governing at all and leaves Paul Ryan to write everything and so we can talk about that and whether or not that like is telling us something deep about the party or simply idiosyncratic about Donald Trump and I think it's a really interesting question. But one of the things that I kept thinking about in the book is, are we actually facing a pretty brutal choice? That on the one hand, if you took the plutocrats out, what you would get is a more, is an even more dangerous form of white identity politics, right? I know every single democratic strategist I know worries much more about the sort of idealized Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon agenda, where they actually do moderate on economics, but really go hard on anti-immigrant sentiment and racism. Um, more than what they're dealing with now because Donald Trump is very vulnerable on the Paul Ryan agenda and like was in 2018 and is again in 2020. So if we got rid of the plutocrats, would that strain of the Republican Party just win right out, right? Would that be, would the white identity politics just be all there is as opposed to this very strange and much more vulnerable coalition they actually have? And Paul, I guess I'll just that to you.
1: Yeah, I'm, I want to back up just for a second because I feel like we're now framing this in a way that that doesn't really comport with what i I think we were the position that we were taking in the book, so w- we are not suggesting that the plutocrats have been in total control of the party, right, so I think that we would completely accept and and I believe we actually explore in some depth in the book the the kind of fraught nature of these relationships uh and and particularly the fraught nature of these relationships within the party and the nature of the alliance. Uh, as it evolves over time, and as these these outrage groups that the party is sort of out, outsourced to, especially right-wing media, I think most important of all, but also the Christian right and groups like the NRA, who are, who are super intense and super extreme and super good at getting people motivated to come out and vote out of fear. Those groups do become more powerful in the party. And uh, Donald Trump, of course, is very good at at using this machinery, right, and intensifying that machinery. So we don't, we don't deny at all that that has happened. We do think that uh, plutocrats have been fundamental. And, we're, you know, plutocrat is a loose term, in, but in, in our thinking about it, it includes groups like the Koch Network, but also a lot of corporate America operating um, through, through entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has been an extreme force and a highly partisan force in American politics. Uh, over the last 25 years, so there is a dynamic, right, which uh, which I think you're highlighting here. It's interesting when people talk about the GOP now. People often use there are a whole bunch of metaphors that people use, that Frankenstein's monster, or uh, as Paul Ryan's chief of staff put it, or sorry, John Boehner's chief of staff put it, you know, we fed the beast that ate us, uh, or Pandora's box is the is the metaphor that we use uh, in the book for this kind of activity. Uh, but uh, but the plutocrats are still have been cheering much of this along, even as they kind of hold their noses uh, at certain elements of it. So we don't see them as somehow the moderating force in the party. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we don't see them as totally controlling it.
2: Yeah. And I, I want to hold on that point because I also want to be clear, I don't see them as a moderating force on the party. What I'm What I'm interested in here is the Republican Party strikes me always as an awkward coalition. And that's true for the Democratic Party. Just the parties in America, and this is, you know, Lee Drutman's point in his great book, um, are just sort of too big. And so they don't make a ton of sense because people can't occupy enough other polls. But one of the things that I think is tricky in this is the Republican Party is combining two forces that I find very toxic in American politics and how to sort of untether them from each other strikes me as a very, very important point. But the question is, are they really tethered to each other or are they intentional already? And so Donald Trump's um first term, I think, is a really good question here. And I'll put this one to you, Jacob. You guys spend a lot of time in the book going through the way Trump runs to some degree as a populist, not always, but, you know, one out of every three things he says is very populist and then governs, um, you know, gives 80 percent of his tax cuts to the top one percent, signs on to this insane repeal and replace plan that that fails even in a Republican Senate when John McCain cast a deciding vote against it. Now, one way of looking at that is that Donald Trump represented something else in the party, but he actually just represented what the party really was in practice, which was this weird collection of white identity politics and billionaires. But another way of looking at it, and one I've been thinking about more and more recently is is maybe we're in a lag. Maybe we're in a lag where the Republican Party at the presidential level is reflecting what the Republican Party really is, which is a party of white identity politics, and is just taking time for congressional players to lose and be replaced such that the congressional GOP is going to look more like that because when I look at the up and comers in Congress, And when I look at the people who are leaving, the people who are leaving are the people who are the sort of traditional economic conservative types. I mean, Paul Ryan retires early as speaker because he just can't hold the contradictions together well enough and he hates his life. And meanwhile, you get your Josh Hawley's, you get your um, Tom Cotton's. When you look at Fox News, it's become much more white identity politics and populistic. And Tucker Carlson is making waves as potentially a presidential candidate. I just wonder if we're sort of looking at the same kind of lag that we saw in the Democratic Party between when it became nationally a party of racial liberalism and it still took time to defeat a bunch of Dixiecrats.
3: That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And, and there may well be some truth to it. I want to say, though, that what's really striking and to go back to your earlier point is that we're talking about a, a tacit alliance between two really intense sets of players one of which is represents really unpopular positions and the other of which uh represent that is the the plutocrats um and one of which represents just uh just garden variety unpopular positions which is sort of the the outrage stoker so uh we could we could have an argument about which of them is more minoritarian than the other you know parties are broad tense but as you've written and. and And as we've written, too, you know, the the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are just really different coalitions. And the Republican coalition has really changed over the last generation in ways that we chart. And it brings together these groups that each of which has real problems with, uh, majoritarian democratic, uh, practice. Um, and, and so to me that, that helps explain a lot of the character of Trump. Um, but yeah, I mean, he outflanks his Republican opponents in 2016 by going toward more popular positions on the most, you know, extreme Paul Ryan-esque kind of, uh, economic positions. And, you know, I think that the lag point, the problem with the lag point, it seems to me, is that, you know, the Republican Party has not been able to win the popular vote. In presidential elections, it's won once uh, in 2004. Basically, since George, you know, H.W. Bush won in '88. I mean, that is a remarkably bad track record. It's quite consistently bad. So this transformation of the party's electorate, which we think flows a lot from its need to reconcile unpopular plutocratic priorities with uh, the ability to kind of get close enough to hold power, I think is it's resulted in a party that is just. Barely able to capture the presidency, mostly because of the systemic features of American politics that favor rural areas.
4: Support for the great area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before.
2: Paul, let me turn to you on this. One of the things that strikes me about the Republican Party is that there's a real tension between its top and its bottom, between the elites and the base. The elites want this sort of plutocratic, economically conservative agenda. And the base tends to rebel when elites go too left on social issues. You guys have data in the book showing that um, the richest Americans are very economically conservative, but they're more socially liberal Than the median American. And that tension strikes me as being in both parties, but it's particularly there in the Republican Party. So as you sort of take the the elites-driven focus, how do you think about the power the base of the Republican Party does or doesn't have, particularly when it comes to primaries, when it comes to jerking conservative media around? Like you don't focus so much on the base, but I'd like to hear your reflections on it as as an actor.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and uh, you know I'm I'm happy that you're probing on the on these issues because uh, we wouldn't want to leave anybody with the impression that we think that those at the top can com- completely control what what happens, and uh, the tensions that you're describing with the base are very strong, and in many ways have been intensified with the with the presidency of Donald Trump because he is so popular with the base and. It's worth adding. He is extremely popular with all these outrage groups, right? I mean, that's actually, you know, the NRA before it sort of imploded on itself. Uh, you know, it saw him as the best president ever, and of course, right wing media loves him, and um, and the evangelical community and the the leaders of the evangelical community mostly love him too. So he he is in that way he has strengthened the base and made life more difficult for the establishment. We don't like the civil war metaphor because we think it leads to way too simple, a story in which, you know, I can think of a a number of prominent examples in commentary recently where people basically say uh, there was a fight between the Ryan wing and uh, the Trump wing and the Trump wing won. That's not completely wrong. We call it a very civil war. um, I like that line a lot. In the book, right, because as, as Jacob was pointing out earlier, The plutocratic side of the party has won huge policy victories in the last few years. And it's worth highlighting because we haven't mentioned this before, that when Trump becomes president, he hands over the main responsibility for setting up personnel on domestic policy in the White House to Vice President Pence and Pence, although we we typically think of him first as an as an ally of the evangelical movement, he has very very deep connections with the plutocratic wing of the party and the Koch network in particular, and those people end up populating much of the administration in you know really powerful positions. So it's it's not like these guys you know are 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 losing out on a lot of the things that they care about. But I do think that there is this dynamic. And as the, as we're living through a pandemic, you can see uh, that, you know, the challenges of of balancing what the base wants and what the elites or the establishment want does become more difficult. But, but I I would just circle back, you know, with, with, I think your really interesting idea that, that maybe the party elite is sort of gradually being repopulated with, with white populace. You know, if you look at the fight that's going on right now under you know, complete crisis conditions to do some kind of legislative response to both the economic and public health challenges, the single absolute demand that Republicans are making in the Senate, that Mitch McConnell is making in the Senate, is a protection against corporate liability, right, which would have no popular support. You know, that that is not the agenda. That is not the top priority uh, of a populist party, it's not. It's not clearly even the agenda of a party that's thinking really hard about what it needs to do to stay in office a few months from now, right? So, it, it, you know, the idea that those economic elites have been shoved out of the corridors of power, or are gradually being shoved out of the corridors of power, uh, you know, I, I think their posture in the in these negotiations would look pretty different if that were true.
2: I think it's clear the congressional party has remained under the same fundamental approach and leadership it had, say, in the Obama era. And a lot of what is going on in it seems to me to be a just kind of exhaustion. That's not where its own party is. It's not what Fox News talks about, right? Fox News doesn't sit around talking about how you need protections for corporations. And that's part of what makes me think It is possible that over 10 or 15 years, you might see a real change here. But this actually gets to to some of my obsessions. Um, And in particular, one that I found so difficult, I left it out of my book. So, like, I'm going to ask you this, Jacob. How do you characterize the relationship between inequality and political polarization?
3: Yeah, that's an easy one, right? <laughs> so so the first thing to say is that, you know, ever since people have been able to graph polarization using these congressional uh, roll call votes uh, measures, uh, they've been graphing polarization and inequality alongside each other and the two track really closely. And so there's something going on, right, that's leading to both an increase in polarization, or there is, there is both an increase in polarization and an increase in inequality. But I think that the 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 simplest explanation of it of the relationship is wrong. That is to say, I don't think that there's just no way to understand the polarization in our politics is just re- representing somehow that you know upper middle income voters are pulling away from you know lower middle income and poorer voters. Right? It's not that is not the story. In fact, the big story with the Republican Party has been trying to attract less affluent white workers to maintain their electoral majorities. Instead, I think the relationship really runs through the Republican Party fundamentally. And that's why it's asymmetric. And it runs through this, these pressures that are created for the a conservative party when inequality rises as dramatically it has as it has in the United States and in the form that it has in the United States with the pulling away of the very top. And, you know, I, I think when, as I said before, you know, if you go back and look at these moments when kind of plutocracy and right wing populism kind of had to hang together, right, or hang separately, these kind of moments of choice or off ramps, they are all are very similar in that. The central question is whether or not the elites are going to moderate on economic issues in a way that would push back against rising inequality, because after all, the, the assumption in most political economy models and in theories of democracy is that when inequality rises, Majority of voters, especially top-heavy inequality, majority of voters will push against it. So you mentioned George W. And the fact that he tried to construct a a more inclusive coalition, he got 44% of the Hispanic vote in 2004. But ultimately, the reason why Bush wasn't able to construct that coalition, I think that he was vulnerable to the right wing outrage stokers was really that he, that the party and Bush himself put such a high priority on, cons- on these conservative economic priorities. I mean, after all, Bush did not come in after the 2004 victory, the first popular victory for a, a Republican presidential candidate since, 19- since his father had been elected in 88 he didn't come in and say let's do comprehensive immigration reform uh, or you know let's let's emphasize opportunity enhancing policies for um you know a multiracial middle class he came in and said let's privatize social security right which is something that only the plutocrats uh, love so i really think it's important to emphasize that um that that the inequality is a structural change that has worked through the republican party and the And the fact that the party has been unable to quit the plutocrats, so to speak, has shaped a lot of the other strategic decisions, including the investment and outrage stoking that they lose uh, some control of more and more over time.
2: I'll be honest that this was a part of the book that I found less convincing because Bush wins that big Hispanic victory in 2004 after pushing both the first and second set of tax cuts. The the regressive dimension of Bush's presidency was very much in play, even when he began doing a little bit better among um, Hispanics. And I agree with you that social security privatization was a disaster and so was the Iraq war. But I, I find that one a very hard piece of it to to disentangle. But, but to push on this a little bit more, Jacob, and I'll, I'll hold on you for this, isn't, This playing out in the Democratic Party too, which is to say, can I mirror your analysis of the Republican Party in the Democratic Party where the Democratic Party, and this is a critique you often hear made on the left of the Democrats, has a quite popular economic agenda, but it also has a more divisive set of views on social issues. Um, it's voters, to use the technical term, more cross pressure. there. We've seen that in a lot of different polling. And so they have these economic issues they use to try to win elections in the same way that the Republicans have white identity issues that they've been using to mobilize their base during elections. And then they push oftentimes, uh, at least in parts of their administration's uh, social agenda that... You can either argue is driven in some cases by the richer wing of the party, or at the very least, uh, as a more traditional left wing argument goes, is a distraction from the economic issues upon which they could build a majority if they would only moderate on race and immigration and so on. But. They think those are moral issues. I mean, how much does this how much does this describe the Democratic Party? Just you'd be a little bit more positive in the analysis.
3: (laughs) I don't think that's that's the parallel with the Democratic Party. I think the parallel um, is really the cross pressure that the party has faced on economic issues. And, And we can get to the social issues side of it. But on economic issues, right. The and this is a this is another complaint of the left, though uh, more the economic left, is that the party has been definitely cross pressured by the degree to which the political system has become oriented around money, and the fact that the um, that the party has um, had a very strong kind of business wing, w- Wall Street wing in Washington, that has uh, generally pooh pooed some of the the priorities of the more populist wing, including really investing in rebuilding labor unions, um, you know, for, for years, the stuff that's now central to the debate, like, um, like paid family leave was, was, was put to the side, you know, so the, and the, in general, right. Sort of, uh, said that the party should be modestly redistributive and pro business. And so I think that's the pressure that's been really hard, uh, for Democrats. The other thing I would say is that I really think that a neglected part of this one that, um, that is really important to understand is the way in which the Republicans efforts to demonize government and racialize government and make it hard to govern have been really problematic for the democratic party as the party that wants to govern. Um, you know, and so the Republican strategy at root has been to really, you know, as, as Steve Bannon said, when asked what he would have done if Hillary Clinton won, he said, you know, we'd fuck her up so badly so that she couldn't govern. That's really been the Republican strategy whenever Democrats have been in the White House. And it is, of course, a self-reinforcing strategy that has led to a massive decline in government capacity. So were I to sort of diagnose problems within the Democratic Party, I think I'd start with the cross pressures that come from inequality and the role of money in politics and continue through, the difficulty of wielding government in the contemporary era. And then I might get to um, some of these social issues, which I don't think are as fundamental to the problems the party's facing.
2: So I think that's interesting. And, and I think I want to, I think I want to come back to it in a second, because I want to go at something else you you said. So there's a dimension to this where there's a demand side to all these policies, too. We talked about that paper earlier that looked at how right-wing parties. Tend to rely more on social division when inequality goes up. And that's this paper by Margaret Tavitz and Josh Potter. And I went and read it. And one of the really interesting arguments they make in that paper is that the strategy only works in countries with a high level of ethnic and religious fracture, of which America is one. And so they actually have a very strong demand side explanation. Like they argue pretty explicitly, they say that inequality is depolarizing in political systems because it leads to a cross-pressuring between the economic dimension and the cultural, racial, religious, et cetera, dimension. And they argue that it can only work in these countries where people want it. And that, that goes to sort of one of my very fundamental questions about uh, American politics right now, which is, is there a way to escape white identity politics in an age when we're having so much demographic pressure, change, transition in an age when social media and, like, the age structure of the country have created this constant confrontation with the way we're changing for people in an age where we had an African-American president and the Democratic Party's becoming much more diverse, that... I worry that there's not a way to get away from the demand side of white identity politics getting met, and in some ways, it could get a lot worse if somebody more competent was trying to meet it and I'm curious, Paul, if you have reflections on that
1: yeah, it's i mean i I think it is the fundamental question of of our times, at least with respect to American democracy and you know just, i mean i and we we haven't yet in this conversation really really talked much about. About the racial divisions that are, that are clearly fundamental to our politics. And, and just to, to step back for a second, I think, you know, Jacob and I wrote this book in part because we, like many Americans, woke up the morning after Trump's election and asked, you know, how is this possible? You know, we didn't anticipate it. Most analysts didn't anticipate it. And I think the answer that that we gave was, and, and it was, of course, it's kind of especially a loaded question for us because we've been studying conservative politics for twenty years, and yet we were still surprised to see that somebody could, you know, could play George Wallace in uh, two thousand sixteen and win. And it it led us, I think, to really recognize that we had greatly underestimated the role of racial resentment and racial divisions in our politics. Uh, and we try to wrestle seriously with that in this book right and um to and to really i think i think the argument that we're trying to develop is certainly not one that um that denies the centrality of these kinds of racial cleavages and we certainly accept and see as as fundamental the notion that it is actually very, very hard to construct a multiracial democracy. There are not a lot of uh, great examples out there of where, that, of where that's been able to work. And so, as the U.S. shifts demographically and as uh, racial minorities gained more political power in the United States, you know, that by itself, as you say, kind of the demand side of the politics, plays a really powerful role and absolutely plays into what we've been experiencing and what we're what we're continuing to experience. But I guess there is a couple a couple of things that we would say about this from our vantage point. Um, one is that the nature of that demand is structured in part by elite politics, right? And so. It's not something that just comes from the bottom up, although there there clearly is an important bottom up element of it. But there has been an organized, I don't want to say conspiratorial, but but it's the set of moves that over time have emerged as working for the Republican Party uh, and for the groups that it's chosen to be in coalition with. And we document this in the book, the way in which at every turn where there are opportunities to sort of racialize these issues, to make, for example, to make white evangelicals think that they're more discriminated against than Muslims are in American society. I mean, these are kind of extraordinary beliefs, I think, for people to come to, and they don't come to them on their own. Uh, so there there has been a real effort, quite successful effort, to channel racial resentment into a particular kind of politics, right, That uh, that the Republican Party has thrived on, even as many of these groups are in demographic decline. You know, and that leads to the second point, which I think we're, we're experiencing today and might, I think, provide cause for some optimism is that, that while the, many of us underestimated the importance of white identity and the kinds of politics that you could generate around white identity, that is not a worldview, uh, that has universal appeal among whites. Uh, in fact, many whites, we can see this in the response to the Black Lives Matters protests, for example. You know, many whites are recoiling from the kind of highly racialized, explicitly racialized message that the Republican Party has increasingly adopted. Uh, so while, you know, the dynamics around this are quite frightening, uh, they're not all pointing in the direction the, the possible path that you had explored in which The Republican Party just continues to march further and further and potentially successfully uh, down a road uh, in which that kind of white identity is the cornerstone of politics. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series
3: running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work
2: different ideas, identities, forms of our politics are activated by political actors, I think is super important. It's a a huge part of my thinking about politics and something I think folks don't take seriously enough. But when I was thinking about that in the book, it sent me back to, I think, probably the most depressing book I've read in the past couple of years. I don't know if you guys have read The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. It's a a book by the historian Walter Scheidel, I think it is. And his basic argument is in this like unbelievably magisterial look at inequality, the only thing that changes it on a dramatic level historically is violence. Uh, mass mobilization for war, total collapse of of a state, state failure, state revolution, uh huge plagues, not pandemics like the one we're living through now, but things like the Black Death seem to have done it. And then he has a survey at the end of the book where he looks at more peaceful things and Inequality survives land reform efforts. It survives democratization. And the thing that it, it, it gave me as a takeaway is just power is incredibly adaptable. It will pick up whatever works wherever it is. And whether that is neutering land reform or trying to profit off of a war that is not like so destructive and mass mobilizing enough that it reshapes society, power is very good at sustaining itself. And, and, and this I'd put to you, Jacob, because it goes to this point about the Democratic Party too that you were making a second ago. I think one of the depressing potential takeaways of your book, of that book, of a lot of books on this is that if you have a lot of money and the amount of money some players have in American politics now have now is unreal, then your just flexibility and strategy to retain that money is unbelievably powerful. And it becomes very hard to see how you get a, a truly disruptive change that is peaceful.
3: Paul and I joke that I'm between two pessimists. I'm the more optimistic, and uh, and I guess I feel like there is a lot of evidence, and Piketty's work shows this as well, that in large, you know, really fundamental structural breaks tend to result from large scale changes. But when I when I look around the world and see just how distinct American inequality is, and how much policies, both those shaping what i call predistribution you know the distribution of of income and wealth before government taxes and transfers like policies shaping unions and redistribution you know the government taxes and transfers themselves when i see how much that those policies matter and how much inequality varies across countries i feel like democracy really does matter and there's a note of optimism there's a note of fear so I mean, clearly, the Republican Party is in a race against time when it comes to demographics indeed, I think it's on the you know it's on the wrong side of the two great transformations of our age: the rise of inequality and the growing diversity of our society and it's not a sustainable majoritarian strategy, and so the question isn't whether or not Republicans, if they have to compete in free and fair elections on a relatively level playing field, will have to become more multiracial and more moderate on economics. I think they will. The party that that takes the Trumpism and doubles down on it is not a majoritarian party. The question is whether or not, especially in this context, but the question is whether or not our experiment in democratic government can survive the kinds of strategies that a party that's not capable of attracting popular majorities in free and fair elections will resort to. And I just want to reemphasize that, you know, as much as we focus on voters in political science, the, the elites are doing everything they can to kind of sideline them in actual politics, whether it's like pushing as much policymaking as possible uh, away from Congress and towards the executive and uh, especially towards the Supreme Court, but even more potent, right? By trying to suppress voting, engaging extreme partisan gerrymandering, you know, things that matter at the margins, in, but, but really, Add up to being, to being a, a, a strategy for minority rule over the longer term, so to me that 's the big fear will Will our system survive a, a counter majoritarian party
1: I just wanted to jump in uh, on on this point to say a couple of things. Um, one is that i 'm really glad, Esther, that you, you know, explicitly raised the notion of power in all of this because I see that as fundamental. To the way that we're trying to reorient this discussion, uh, we—it's difficult to trace where the power lies. So much of it operates in a kind of subterranean way, affecting what gets on the agenda, uh, the things that don't happen, uh, as well as the things that do. Uh, but, but central to our work and our understanding of what's going on is recognizing that. That power has become profoundly unequal in the United States in ways that are really not compatible with uh, what we think of as democracy, and th- and the U.S. is a big outlier in that respect, as Jacob pointed out. And so we do see, you know, some kind of serious reversal of that, which we agree is an enormously challenging, as being essential if we're going to preserve and strengthen our democratic institutions. And, and the second thing to say, and here here is maybe a note of optimism, is as we talk about the kind of politics that might make those kinds of changes possible, we argued in a, a previous book, but also in this one, that there's there's a certain ironic advantage to just how unequal things have become, which is that it actually makes it possible to use government to provide things, mostly from taxing the very well-to-do, uh, that would benefit you know, overwhelming majorities of the American public, right? And so if you can get in a position in government where you can legislate, and we could talk about the obstacles to doing that, there really are many, many opportunities, we think, for positive sum uh, deals that would make most Americans significantly better off.
2: I want to hold on this point of minoritarian governance because I really like how you put this in the book and I want to read a piece of it. You write that the specter we face is not just a strong man bending a party and our political institutions to his will. It is also a minority faction entrenching itself in power beyond the ambitions and careers of any individual leader. And that struck me as really, really significant because a case can be made, and it's a case I think is true, that we have been worried about the wrong anti-democratic threat for the past couple of years, that the threat of Trump turning into an autocratic strongman has taken up so much energy and fear that the actual threat we're living under, which is minoritarian governance, that keeps being further and further entrenched with judicial appointments, with Supreme Court appointments, with um, changes to constitutions and voting rules being made in the states. That's becoming more real by the day. And the Democratic Party has, as far as I can tell, virtually no answer for what to do about it. And so, Jacob, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about this, because it seems to me that we're actually probably nearing an inflection point on this, that either pretty significant changes is going to be made to our democracy to make it democratic again, small-D democratic, or it's going to become almost impossible for majorities to rule in any kind of sustained way.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, we don't think that you have to choose. Like there was the other day someone was saying, you know, wrote, you know, Tr- Trump is, is Trump a fascist authoritarian? And I was like, yes, and he's also a plutocratic populist and, you know, counter majoritarian. Um, You know, you don't have to contains
2: multitudes. Yeah.
3: You don't have to choose. These are both real threats. But I think the countermajoritarian threat is a very is a distinctively American threat and therefore really worth understanding because it's so closely linked to the rise of inequality and the conservative dilemma. And um, our system has, you know, two big features that allow kind of this entrenched countermajoritarian strategies. And one is the rural bias that we've mentioned several times. But I just want to Emphasize that you know historically we've we've you know the Senate has always been favorable towards low population states and therefore the Electoral College has uh, included uh, uh, some of that bias. But it's only as as you know in the last generation that we've seen this sharp alignment between rurality and Republicanism, and th- and this is a really good illustration of how, you know, there's this self-reinforcing process that occurs as Republicans realize they need to not just win voters, they need to win voters in particular places. So what are the kinds of appeals that will allow them to win those voters? Um, and then the other thing that our system has is this whole set of institutions that, you know, are frankly counter-majoritarian, the Supreme Court uh, being the most obvious. Um, but then we've layered on top of our tilted Senate, the filibuster, which uh, makes it almost impossible to govern uh, and makes the Senate the central place where bills go, to live or die, but mostly die. And I just say that also, it's worth noting that, you know, the system relies a lot on Congress checking the executive, which, um, of course, doesn't work in, the, in a context of complicity of the sort we've seen recently. So I agree with you. I think it's a really important moment. And I guess I think there is some sign that um, those who are worried about the future of democracy are starting to figure out that this is really where, you know, where the focus should be. When John Lewis passed away, um, you know, Barack Obama went and gave that stirring eulogy, and it's probably the first eulogy, uh, at least the first I've seen, that mentions filibuster reform, right? He was very clear about we need yeah, to get that him. was
2: a big moment. I yeah. mean, I've been on vacation yeah. when that happened, but that was a big moment, I thought, when he said, look, if they stop you from doing this and it's time to get rid of the filibuster, that was exactly. a step. He has talked about filibuster reform before, but never like that.
3: Never like that and never linking it to, you know, essentially the idea that, that we need another Voting Rights Act, right? That That the Lewis legacy was destroyed by... Uh, the 2013 uh, Supreme Court case, um, Shelby versus Holder, but also by all of the anti-democratic practices that you've been talking about. Um, I'll also
2: say my first thought, and I'd be curious what you thought on this, was that the audience for that line was Joe Biden.
3: No, I think that's right.
2: I mean, because Obama was linking that, not just in a way that worked for the eulogy, and obviously he was where he was when he did it, but I mean, it was very much linking it to an argument that like accords with Joe Biden's self-image whereas like other kinds of arguments wouldn't.
3: And and I thought that the the most powerful way in which he kind of did that um you know kind of captured this idea of continuity and change that is kind of where Joe Biden's campaign is is saying you know, the, the phrase is a more perfect union. Right. Um, and John Lewis is a founding father, he said, uh, in forming a more perfect union. And, the, and I do think, we're, we're, you know, the Constitution is really showing its age and the degree to which money in politics, the tilt of our democratic system towards rural areas and therefore the Republican Party, the weakness of the separation of powers, the dominance of certain counter-majoritarian institutions, all of that comes down to the to the fact that our our political system was set up in a way that was not well designed to deal with the kind of parties we have, and particularly the Republican Party. And, you know, that's going to be a hard one for Joe Biden to swallow. But uh, but I think if anybody can uh, deliver the medicine with some uh, with some sugar, it's uh, it's Barack Obama.
2: That's a, a point I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about, Paul, because you've written a few papers now about the way in which the Madisonian system is breaking down. And you guys have a nice discussion in the book of what even a republic, not a democracy actually means. But could you talk a bit about how you think the current system is out of alignment with what it was intended to be and how it was intended to work?
1: Well, of course, we have to be we have to be careful about saying what it was intended to be because you know, we, yeah. So Eric Schickler, one of my colleagues at Berkeley, and I have been doing some work on this. And we we also use this shorthand of a Madisonian system, even though, of course, Madison had ideas about what the constitution should look like that were pretty far from what the model that we ended up with. But then he he articulated a strong case for it. And the idea was that you would have separation of powers and you would have federalism. And that this would generate a highly pluralistic kind of politics, a highly factionalized politics that would uh, prevent parties from coalescing in a really strong form. And the result of that would be that it would work pretty well with the separation of powers system because it would be pretty easy to develop uh, broad coalitions that reached across the parties from issue to issue and that, you know, this, this might produce a lot of happy results. And essentially the, the argument, uh, that Eric and I have made and it, and, and, you know, Jake and I, I think have, have similar views about this. And, and some of this shows up in your book as well, Ezra, right? Is that, that American politics is nationalized, um, over the last 40 to 50 years, partly as a result of the civil rights movement. The other thing that that Eric and I emphasize is um, that Washington became a lot more important in American politics after the 1960s. Government was just doing a lot more. You can think of something like Roe v. Wade uh, as a good uh, illustration of that, where all of a sudden, whether or not abortion, there was going to be access to abortion in your state. It really depended on what the majority of the Supreme Court said. It didn't depend on things that were going on uh, in in your individual state. So uh, the parties become uh, more homogeneous, more nationalized, and the interest group environment also becomes more nationalized. And the various groups start picking sides and really aligning with one party. We Jacob and I have chronicled what happened to the Chamber of Commerce and the way it went from being you know a pretty conservative institution, but one that worked with members of both parties to really becoming, you know, very much explicitly really a part of the Republican coalition, trying to get Republicans to control the Senate, for example, so that they would control Supreme Court nominations. So now you have these parties that are much more unified, uh, that fight these national battles. And so this kind of there are no opportunities for uh, for bipartisan coalitions. There, there's no opportunity for kind of the diversity of interests in different parts of the country to find its way into national politics. And what we find is that the Madisonian system, the separation of power system, does not work nearly as well uh, in this kind of environment. Uh, you can't count on ambition checking ambition, right? We, we don't see Republican senators checking uh, President Trump, for example, no matter how much he usurps power that traditionally has rested with the Senate. Uh, we see uh, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court behaving in ways uh, where they know that they can make decisions like gutting the Voting Rights Act, uh, confident that no bill is going to be able to get through uh, Congress uh, to uh, to correct for the uh, for the decisions that they've made, so um, you know our highly polarized politics with these unified parties um, do not fit very well with um, with this Madisonian system. And this is the place,
2: uh, Jacob, where my fears grow deepest because the thing that seems very specific right now is you have a Republican Party of white identity politics and or. Republican Party of sort of plutocratic policies, and they haven't both needed an anti-democratic minoritarian agenda before. For a long time in American life, why did entity politics was either so powerful that nobody would challenge it, or at least like that you couldn't challenge it and win a national election is maybe the more specific way to say that. That's not true any longer. And the plutocratic side we've covered pretty heavily here. And so whatever tensions exist in their coalition with each other, and I think I'm more on the side that those tensions are pretty big than maybe you guys are, they have a real uh, lockstep interest in keeping the country from becoming an actual democracy. And between the two of them, given the amount of land that's controlled, given state running of elections, that, that capacity is there. So as the optimist in the conversation, how do you imagine that being broken? Like, how what 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 is the path? to a majoritarian, you know, with uh, appropriate protections for people's rights, what is the path back to a majoritarian democracy?
3: Well, let me say first that I, I do want to sort of emphasize the concern. I think there is um, there is a need for, for for guarded, cautious, careful optimism, but we should be really guarded and careful and cautious because, as you said, I mean, we now have two parts of a party that both want what majorities won't provide um, and 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 so we have you know we have we've always had counter majoritarian institutions like the supreme court but we've never had count- these counter majoritarian institutions so tightly aligned with a with a party that is also increasingly committed to and seeking uh, to pursue counter majoritarianism and so that is a real fear now I think the optimistic story really rests on uh, replacing this kind of vicious uh, cycle with a virtuous one. And that's going to have to run through elections. And And so what, one thing to say is that the nationalization that Paul talked about is actually very constraining for Republicans when they're deeply out of step with the direction that they're constituencies are moving. So we saw that play out in California. We're seeing it play out now in states that were once, you know, deep, deep red, like Arizona and Texas, that the party cannot, you know, the locals cannot distance themselves from this kind of white identity politics. And um, and with the changing de- demographics, it is, a, it is a very bad place to be in some places. And but that's not going to do it by itself, right? It's going to require that there be substantial political reforms. And and so I, you know, I think given the context of COVID, you can be very worried about the election and its integrity, but you can also think that there's, uh, given the crisis and, and both economic and health crisis, that there's also greater scope for reform, both economic and political. And there has to be, you know, you have to recognize that this is multiple rounds of reform in which, you know, each set of reforms has to build power for the next. And that's not been, you know, what Democrats have been particularly good at, at least since the 1980s or so. Um, They were really good at it um, in the New Deal era. Um, But I think there's more recognition that that's that's what has to happen. And so it helps that you can pass Big, You know, you can raise taxes on the super rich and raise a fair amount of money to pursue progressive reforms. It also helps that interest rates are like zero. So you can borrow without um, having to worry too much about paying it back. But 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 centrally, you need to do popular things that appeal to a broad majority, multiracial majority, um, get reelected and do it again.
2: I think that's a good place to come to a close, so i don't know if you both have three books um, or you you've split it up between you, but let me start with you Paul. what give, give me some book recommendations
1: so i so I think we did each think of three because we wanted to see if we came up with with pretty different answers since we usually agree on on everything and i I started with two books that because because we spend so much of our time. Thinking about economic and political elites, I, I wanted to mention two books that I've read that, that were super powerful to me on thinking about people who are at the, the other end of the spectrum and the challenges that they face in context of extreme inequality. And so one is Catherine Boo's uh, wonderful book about Mumbai, be, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Uh, And the other is Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, um, about uh, being on the edge of of homelessness in Milwaukee. And I just think they're both beautiful and extremely compassionate books. And the other one I'll just mention, uh, which is reaching much further back, is a a book by a, a British economist, Fred Hirsch, called The Social Limits to Growth uh which um was the i think the first major work written in the late 1970s on h- how different the economy looks and how different social conflicts around the economy are likely to look uh, in a world in a post-industrial world in a world in which uh you're no longer in a particularly manufacturing e- economy but more the one that's driven by by knowledge and services and i still think it's full of profound insights even though it's it's uh, now 40 years old well, I, I'm really glad that we didn't pick all the same books because, um,
3: I get to plug three that, um, that I found really, um, powerful. And it, it, this is the, uh, you know, the COVID moment. And so, uh, I'm home with my family and, and these are three books that relate to my family. My, uh, mother in law, who was living for, with us for a while, um, gave me Leo Damroche's Tocqueville's Discovery of America. And I have to say it was, really a a totally new look at a book that I knew very well and found I found it very powerful at this moment. Uh, so too uh, a recommendation from my daughter, um, Kazuo Ishiguro's The Buried Giant, um, which um, was very affecting um and um especially given what we're facing. And then finally I just I, I gotta mention my 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 wife's book, uh, The Internationalist, which she wrote with Scott Shapiro, because uh, it really is a great book. And um, it's about the formation of this uh, now endangered uh, world order that we live in. And uh, um, it was fun to watch, uh, and it's sometimes challenging to watch her uh, go through what, uh, what I've gone through many times um, and uh, working with a co-author she loves and, and respects like I love and respect Paul.
2: Jacob Packer, Paul Pearson, thank you very much.
3: Thanks
1: for having us. Thank you.
2: Thank you to Jacob Hacker and to Paul Pearson for being here. Thank you to you for being here. And before we end, I want to note something in memoriam, something a little bit sadder. Uh, One of our colleagues at Vox Media, Adelise Martinez, died recently after a long battle with cancer. She was a designer at Vox Media and she did just gorgeous, amazing work. Um, She's also a book cover designer. She's done many books that you've seen and heard of. She was a master at pulling a mood and pulling the soul of something into color and typography and into simplicity. And one of her last projects, and I didn't know she was sick when she was working on this, was the new icon for the show, which I just love. Um, so I want to spend a moment remembering her and thanking her for, for the work she did. Um, and my heart, of course, goes out to her family and to her friends.